Hello and welcome to the Career Explorations and Genomic Medicine Research Podcast. This program is sponsored by the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Program for Precision Medicine and Healthcare. This Career Explorations program is aimed at undergraduate students. Our goals are to help you expand your knowledge of potential careers related to genomic medicine research. And we hope to increase your understanding of what you will need to do to become a member of the genomic medicine research workforce. We also want to help you build a supportive network of professionals. Each episode of this podcast series presents a conversation with a researcher or clinician who works in a particular aspect of genomic medicine research. Thank you all for joining us. And my name is Lana Mollison. Uh, you've seen me on all of the calls. <laughs> I'll just share with you my journey from after high school. So I went to high school in a small town in Scotland County, Warburg, North Carolina. And then after high school, school I went to Fayetteville uh, Tech Community College in one of the reasons I went to a two-year school instead of going straight to a four-year, I was actually raised in a really strict uh, religious household. And so my parents really didn't encourage <laughs> I love my parents. <laughs> Don't get that. But we weren't encouraged necessarily to go away to college. Um, there was concern that we would be influenced. So uh, we really were encouraged just to go to a two-year school. And so... I went to a two-year school, and I said, I'm going to try to do the hardest thing I can do. So I went for electronics, engineering, technology, but it wasn't necessarily my passion. So I went to work for a telecom company in Raleigh, um, actually in RTP, the Research Triangle Park. Um, And I worked there for about two years. And then um, in 2001, there was a downturn in the economy, which resulted in massive layoffs. And so... There I was only two years out of uh, my two-year program and unemployed and uh, really had a difficult time trying to find work. Um, So I kind of felt a little disillusioned. I felt like, oh, wow, you can put all that into education and you're not really guaranteed anything. Um, So that was kind of a wake-up call. And around that time, I um, found myself in just jobs, you know, just to pay the bills, but they weren't necessarily intellectually challenging. But I was a little bit afraid to go back to school um, because of that disillusionment. (laughs) Um, So my sister actually was the one who was like, you know, Lana, you're too smart. I want you to go back to school. You need to get a four-year degree. And so um, I thought about going for um, biomedical engineering since I already had the two-year degree in electronics. And um, there was a joint program. I think there still is a joint program at UNC and NC State. But NC State would not accept my credits from uh, Fayetteville Tech. <laughs> and I didn't want to start over from scratch. And so um, that made, at that time, North Carolina Central University was um, starting to develop a program in uh, biotechnology. and But it wasn't completely finished. So when I went and talked to the advisors, they said, just take as many courses as you can in that program, but you could get your degree in biology. And so that's what I ended up doing. And um, I fell in love with genetics. I was taught it by uh, Dr. Kathy Silverkey. I think she's still there. (laughs) And um, she really uh, put a lot of effort into her classes. And um, 
I, I always remember uh, the backwards ape, which was about how <laughs> the um, RNA is processed from um, the gene transcription to translation. Um, and so I fell in love with genomics. And at that point, I had to decide, did I want to do a master's or did I want to go into a doctorate program? So I kind of weighed those differences and um, actually was a teacher or professor at, at uh, Central that said, um, she said basically that she um, liked me too much for me not to go for a PhD and she would not write me a letter of recommendation <laughs> unless I applied to a PhD program. So I applied to only one program, which was at UNC. I do not suggest that. <laughs> it was definitely taking a gamble, but I applied to uh, UNC. I knew that I wanted to go into the curriculum of genetics and molecular biology. Thankfully, I was accepted. I was accepted into the um, umbrella program, um, which is, uh, I forget the what it's called right now. But as part of that, I also was part of the initiative for maximizing student diversity, which really gave me a lot of support as I transitioned from a historically black college to a predominantly white institution. And, um, you know, if you guys have questions about how that was, I'll be happy to talk about it. But, um, you know, graduate school definitely was challenging in ways that I hadn't imagined. Um, I joined a lab after doing my three rotations, but soon realized that that um, advisor style was not suited to my best interest. So I um, was in a position where I needed to um, find a different lab. So changing labs after joining a lab, I've gone through that. Um, but then I ended up in a lab that wasn't as focused on uh, you know, cancer genetics. It was more basic research question, but the advisor was more um, amenable to my success. Um, and so I was in graduate school for eight years. I, I also hope that that doesn't happen to you, but that's one of the things about graduate school. Sometimes you, you have, there's some things you control, there's some things you cannot. Um, and sometimes um, projects don't work out. Sometimes you need to change a lab and that can definitely extend the time that you are in graduate training. Um, so after I completed my PhD, my advising committee always would ask, what did I want to do? And so they are the ones who suggested that I speak with um, Jonathan Berg because I said, I'm so interested in precision medicine. I really wanted to get into that field. And so um, as I was trying to complete my PhD, which was probably one of the most stressful times of my life, <laughs> trying to finish your doctorate, write your dissertation, prepare for your defense, and plan your next step without knowing if you're going to pass and, uh, you know, complete your PhD in time. You have to do those things. You have to start looking at what you're going to do next. And so I met with um, Jonathan Berg, where I entered into a postdoc. And so then in my postdoc, I uh, became much more focused on um, precision medicine and uh, clinically relevant research um, I was part of a research project called NC Nexus that looked at um, the use of exome sequencing in newborn children as a potential to augment current newborn screening programs. And I've also been involved with NC Genes 2, which is uh, looking to um, 
use that film sequencing in people with undiagnosed conditions. And there's a, a effort to make sure that 60% of the people who are engaged in this research project, or this actually a clinical trial, are from underrepresented and underserved communities. And really, as I um, worked on the NC Genes project, and I, my project was called Age-Based Genomic Screening, um, there was a wet lab component where we had to look at an alternate way to introduce genetic screening into routine care for children um, that wouldn't do whole exome sequencing because there are so many ethical concerns when you sequence the whole exome of a newborn. Um, so there was a wet lab that uh, used targeted sequencing and created gene panels and tried to show that this was uh, a technology that could cost similar to the cost of newborn screening, but that could also um, sequence the variants that we are interested in. But then there was a LC component to that that was about, is this what parents even want for their children? And so that allowed me to uh, get more engaged in, um, like I said, LC research. And I was able to do a focus group study with African-American parents from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And that really opened my eyes that, you know, there's so many things that people from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds are dealing with. It's going to impact their ability to um, benefit from genomic medicine. And that concerns me. And, I, you know, I come from a low-income background. Um, I want my family and my community and myself to be able to benefit from genomic medicine. And so that is what kind of made me want to focus my career on um, disparities um, that are emerging in the field of genomic medicine research. So um, currently, I recently was uh, promoted to a research associate where I will be leading an initiative called Paradigm, which stands for Promoting Advocacy and Research Awareness in Diversity and Inclusion for Genomic Medicine. So that's going to look at three different areas where disparities are emerging. One is in um, who has access, and it, we'll talk about rural health and how can we make sure that we partner with small community clinics to bring precision medicine and genomic medicine to um, small communities. It'll also look at who is participating in research studies or so disparities in um, whose perspectives are um, involved in the questions that we ask, as well as who are the actual participants in the studies, and how can we make sure that we are engaging with and including diverse members of um, society in genomic medicine research. And then the third is diversifying the workforce. There is definitely a lack of minority <laughs> representation in genomic medicine research. And so that's what I'm involved in currently. And so um, I'll open the floor up to questions. Um, what would you say is like one of the main disparities that you've seen between like minorities and people of lower economic status, like in genomic medicine? And it's kind of like a hard question, but like, why do you think it exists? Like what's in the system in genomic medicine that allows it to exist? Um, I think one is definitely participation of subjects um, because um, many of the research studies that have been used to develop the resources that we use or the database, databases that are used to determine if a variant is pathogenic, disease-causing, or benign 
we don't have enough representation of um, African-Americans or and other minority populations within the U.S. Therefore, a minority is more likely to get what we call a VUS or a variant of uncertain significance. And so what do you do with that information? But there are many reasons why there's a lack of uh, diversity in samples. Some of it relates to pre-existing disparities and uh, wrongs that were committed against uh, you know, black communities. Many people know about the T Tuskegee syphilis study where uh, black men were told they were being treated for syphilis and they weren't so that they could watch the progression of syphilis in black men. And uh, that is a study that went on for 40 years. And so uh, that still is very uh, real and present in people's minds. And, and not to mention all of the other social inequities and injustices that are still present to this day, many people just don't trust the research process. If I give you my DNA, what are you really gonna do with it? And so academic centers really have to put forth an effort to build trust in communities that have been hurt and oftentimes overlooked and not included in research. Thank you. I have a question. Do you think having more of more diverse um, people who are working in genomic research, do you think that will have a positive correlation to the number of um, diverse, you know, communities that are not usually represented in the research studies? Do you feel like, um, like a participant or a potential participant seeing um, someone that looked like them, you know, interviewing them, doing the study, will have a positive correlation to them actually wanting to do the study? Absolutely. Um, it's not the only thing that'll build trust, um, but we actually did a panel discussion back in September um, that was entitled um, Precision Medicine and Black Communities, Health Innovation for All with a question mark. And we asked the people who attended our panel, what do you think needs to be done to help establish trust? And the number one response was representation. Seeing people who look like them that are leading the research studies and people who are also involved in the recruitment of, of uh, research participants, if they reflect the community, that breaks down at least one barrier. Like, okay, this is someone that looks like me. I might feel more comfortable with them. I might be more open to asking questions. Again, it's not everything because one person also said that for her, trust is about relationships and she didn't care if we were black, white or whatever. But if you haven't built a relationship with me, I don't trust you. And she actually walked out of that panel discussion. <laughs> so um, trust means different things, even within the black community, but definitely having representation matters. And I also think that you just have the sense of connection with your community and you want to reach back. You mentioned this earlier, but can you talk about your experience going from NCCU to UNC? Because that's a very different demographic. Mm -hmm. um, it was, it was definitely, <laughs> it was challenging. And I'm someone, I graduated summa cum laude from um, North Carolina Central, uh, or yeah, North Carolina Central University. <laughs> um, but I think, the way you're asked to think in uh, graduate, sc graduate school is a little bit different from undergraduate. And um, undergraduate, sometimes it's about testing your memory, your ability to retain information, and then regurgitate that information on a test. 
Whereas in graduate school, you are being called to apply that information and um, also to question what information you are taught. So um, I think there's a lot of things at play there. Like I said, I was raised in a really religious household. So I really wasn't raised to question authority or to think in that way. And also, um, I always was taught to kind of trust the, the textbooks that are put in front of you. But in research, as you read um, manuscripts, one of the things that you are taught to do is to question them and to talk about how they could have improved their study and to think critically about it. And so that was a skill I had to develop. Um, and I also think it was just a little bit more uh, competitive at, um, in, at the graduate level where NCCU felt more comforting and, uh, you know, uplifting. I, I think that's part of the purpose of having historically black schools is to uh, really reach those communities that, you know, weren't included in higher education. But when you transition to a predominantly white institution, sometimes those resources aren't in place. I do think UNC is aware of that. And I think that's why they have the initiative, uh, the initiative for maximizing student diversity and other programs that are there to try to support um, diverse students. But um, it was challenging, for sure. Just to follow up on that, you mentioned that you were deciding between doing your master's and your doctorate. Mm -hmm. What was like your thinking process, like deciding? Obviously, your professor had a big role in that. But like when you were individually thinking about it, like what were you kind of thinking? Um, so I'm I, like I said, I, I didn't go straight to school from uh, from high school. I went to two year school, then I had a break and I worked. And so I'm about seven years older than the average student. Um, so part of it was just time. You know, did I want to invest time? And like I said, you might think you're going to finish the PhD in four years, but you might not. <laughs> and so um, that was one part of it. But I also realized that with a master's, you might not be able to lead research studies, um, at least in the academic setting. You know, um, oftentimes it will require that you have a doctorate to become a professor, unless you become a, a clinical professor, like many of the um, genetic counseling uh, people that you have met are actually clinical professors. So I didn't know about that option, but uh, for if you're very interested in um, wet lab research uh, and you want to eventually lead studies and uh, get grant funding on your own, then it seemed like the logical choice was to go the PhD route. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So I have a question. Um, so my question was, do you think uh, minorities will ever fully trust the research process? Not just because of what's going on right now, but as you described, like the past trials and things like that, do you think the numbers of um, representation in like trials would ever get to that point? Because like, even if you're not a minority, people still do not trust the research trials and the process. Like, and given the fact that you're minority aware of like all the um, disparities in healthcare, like do you ever think that the number is going to be equal? And if so, like, what do you think besides just building trust is going to get us there? That's a great question. Um, 
I don't think it's, it's an uphill battle for sure. Um, I don't think it's something that's going to happen overnight, but I do think that the climate in this country is um, calling upon academic institutions, private industry to really look at how they can address um, unconscious bias, implicit bias, and um, outright bias. And I think that is a good thing. I think a lot of people are starting to build departments that are about um, dedicating effort, 100% effort to um, looking at diversity and inclusion issues within corporations and within academic institutions. That being said, do I ever think, we will ever get rid of complete mistrust? I don't think so, but um, I also don't think that mistrust is necessarily bad. I think it's good to have some uh, doubt and to um, therefore ask probing questions if you are going to become involved in a clinical trial. I think that um, we owe it to patients and to the public to be transparent as we can and to always convey the risk as well as the benefits from participating. And for some people that's going to be a deterrent, but at least they're informed. So um, I don't think that we'll ever fully get rid of mistrust, but I think we can do our part by being transparent. Thank you. Just a general follow-up question to that. Um, I was curious as to like when people are recruited to volunteer for these trials, like how are they explained about certain things or like how are they presented because not everyone like has a phd background or has a research background that they know like the advantages and disadvantages because like even researchers when they go to clinical trials are most often like questioning everything so like not coming from a research background like how do they sort of explain to their audience like what's going to go on Mm -hmm. their contribution and things like that So most clinical trials or even um, any research involving human subjects usually requires some form of consent. And um, it can be signed. If there's not a large risk of of injury from participating, sometimes like a focus group, sometimes you can have a waiver, but you still will have to convey to them, you know, if you share your ideas in this focus group, we can't guarantee you privacy. So it's like, you always have to have some type of consent to participating in the trial. And usually that means you have to read through with them everything that in the consent form has to be um, follow a certain protocol that describes, you know, the risks. It just describes the benefits. Um, it de- describes if you're like reimbursed anything or for your time and effort. Um, so there's several things that have to be included in that consent. And then another thing that we often think about is um, health literacy. As you're saying, a lot of people are not on a, you know, graduate level reading-wise and comprehension. So trying to make uh, materials that can be understood by um, lower literacy individuals is something that is often a concern because when you have scientists writing things up, we tend to write it at a higher level. So trying to make sure that uh, consent forms can be easily understood and that people feel comfortable asking questions. And, and like you're saying, some people may not know what questions to ask. So uh, making sure that the consent is uh, comprehensive. 
So is there often like a person of the higher education level with them and like when they go through the process, is it in any way recorded just to see like everything was explained properly or like if it wasn't done right, just to like reevaluate because let's just say like it wasn't explained properly. And then the person comes back saying like this wasn't done right because I wasn't aware of X, Y, and Z. Like is there a way to follow up on that so that you can check if it was actually conveyed in the right way? So usually when you um, go through consent, it could depend. If you're doing research on the understanding of the consent process, then it might be that you record those um, consent um, interactions so that you can see, oh, who asked questions and did they understand it? And was it explained the same? And what are the differences between different racial and ethnic backgrounds? That could be a whole research question. Um, but generally, the consent process is not recorded. But what the participant always has the number to the IRB office, which is the Institutional Review Board. So if they ever feel like something has been done that they don't think is right or they feel like they're um, human rights were violated, they can contact them. They usually have the number and direct contact information of the person who's leading the research study. Um, and they usually get a copy of the consent form. So not only does someone walk it through with them, they get to take it with them so that they can continue to read over it. So just to follow up, so in your opinion, like, even if the person has it, but like, the way it was portrayed because like not everyone sits and reads through it every single word and like people sometimes can play on words if you know what i'm saying so just to like because what's on paper does not really say like what they actually went through during that session so like what if somebody did do somebody wrong and it's like they can't really explain it the way it was like they were done wrong so it's like what's the way in your opinion, to kind of tackle that? So anyone who participates in a research study, whether they are the person recruiting the subjects or um, analyzing research, usually has to go through training. Um, and that has to be um, indicated on the IRB application. So you have to name who are going to be members of the research study you have to show that they've undergone the proper training so they know how to interact with people so that they're not interacting with people in a way that violates their rights um and then those for instance recruiters who might go through the consent process will be trained on how to go through that consent process so the study would try to control for that but you're right you could have some uh, variability in how the different recruiters go through that consent form but you would try your best to control for that through training all right thank you mm -hmm. i have a kind of random question but how did you come about like making this program and like setting it all up and like just like the idea behind it so I, I worked with Sabrina, <laughs> and um, so I had developed a program called Tailored, which is uh, teach, assist, uh, assess interests, integrate those interests into learning opportunities and research experiences, and then the student would disseminate those through like a TED-style talk or something at the end of the research program. But because we couldn't do all of that, we, uh, Sabrina and I met and thought about how we could uh, do something for this summer. 
And I think it's so important for people to know all the different paths. You, you don't have to go just into a PhD. You could go into medical school. You could go into genetic counseling or law school and still be impactful in the field of genomic medicine. And so we came up with uh, the program thinking about what we could do that would um, be easily facilitated in COVID-19 times. Um, and, uh, and we came up with this program and, you know, we had to reach out to all these different people. Some of them we didn't know directly, but um, we thought they would be an excellent addition to this summer programming. So, Lana, thinking about the transition from undergraduate into whatever your next level of training is, what habits do you think make for success during that transition? I would say definitely openness um, and being willing to accept your flaws and being willing to ask for help. Um, That was something, being vulnerable is difficult, but it really is a sign of strength um, to be able to say, I don't understand this, or I need a little bit of tutoring, or, um, you know, I got a low pass <laughs> in graduate school, and I just felt like, oh, no, you know, was it a low pass, or I got a low score on a test? And, uh, you know, at first, the Initiative for Maximizing Student Diversity reached out to me and said, oh, would you like some uh, training and I thought I don't need training <laughs> you know I never had needed training in all of my schooling but when I started to prepare for the um, what is the test called in your like your second year your qualifying exam. qualifying exam yeah I definitely asked for training I wanted to prepare for it because if you fail that I think you might get one more chance and then you're out the program so uh, you know And I think filling it once is going to be such a blow to your uh, self-esteem. If you can fill it, if you can pass it the first time, then that's what you want to do. So learning to ask for help, accepting that help when it's offered, you know, uh, stepping away from your ego and um, really just having a focus on, you know, obtaining your goals. And even if that means getting some assistance where you've never needed it in the past, that's okay. So do any of the students have any um, diversity and inclusion concerns or, you know, concerns about transitioning or picking a mentor in graduate school? Um, I have a question. Once you finished your PhD and, like, you didn't want to stay at your institution, where do, like, most people go if they didn't stay at their you know, their institution? Like, do they go to another institution or, like, maybe back into industry? Yeah, I, um, there is a website called the Future of Research, futureofresearch.org, and they have really been focused on trying to be more transparent about what happens to PhDs, because some of us just fall off the face of the earth. <laughs> but um, they have uh, shown that uh, a good majority of PhDs do a postdoc. Um, and that not necessarily at their home institution, but they may go to um, different institutions across the United States or even abroad. Some people are able to go directly into industry, but um, more and more some positions are expecting at least one or two years of a postdoc just to show that you can transition 
and do new research in a new area. Um, although you don't have to do that, you could continue in the research that you've been doing in graduate school. But I think a lot of people want to try something new once they finish their PhD. So some will go to other institutions, some may do a, a postdoc in industry, some may go directly into a position in industry. But usually if you're thinking of becoming a professor, you will do a postdoc first. Depending on your area, because I have a friend who recently graduated and she went directly to um, an assistant professor, but she's in social policy. Oh, okay. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and earning a PhD doesn't mean you are going to do bench science for the rest of your life. Um, my PhD is in microbiology, and uh, my career has been in science education. Exactly. So um, I liked doing lab work, but I was more excited about teaching other people science than I was um, about doing science myself. There are, there are lots of options open. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, don't be afraid to explore those options. I think sometimes it's, you know, people keep doing the same thing because it's what they know and uh, change can be scary. But if you feel burnt out, if you're not happy in what you're doing, definitely explore something new. So I'll ask a question to the students. Have you guys decided what you want to do next and the next after undergraduate? Yeah, um, I want to do MD-PhD, so I'm really looking into those programs and um, seeing how I can incorporate, because I know some programs also have, like, uh, one-year masters that people do in between, like, when they're doing their PhD, but also in between medical school, so maybe, like, bioinformatics, so I'm sort of looking into how I can combine those together. Because I really don't want to stay in school for a long time, but like MDPhD does take a long time. So if I'm interested in other things, I want to just kind of scoop it all into one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, one thing about the time, like I said, I was in graduate school a lot longer than I thought I would be, but the time is going to pass regardless. So if it's leading you to something that you want in your life, if you want that MDPhD, even if it means eight to nine years of training um, after your undergraduate, eventually you'll have that MD-PhD if you stay the course. So I think if that's what you're passionate about, then definitely go for it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a question. So when you mentioned that, like, it's easy to, well, not easy, but, like, there's a lot of different options to like switch if you want to do teaching if you want to do research do you think like that's easy to kind of switch from one course to another and are there like resources to help you kind of with that transition so if you want to if you were doing wet lab kind of like sabrina alluded to then decided that she wanted to do a different career path yeah um so there are uh, programs that they are doing at unc Um, that are trying to get students exposure to different career paths um, through like an internship. I actually did an internship in my um, second year of graduate school at Johnson & Johnson. So I think if you are thinking that maybe after completing your PhD that you might want to do something different, try to get exposure to that. And, and one way you can figure out what you like to do. I remember one person said, think about what energizes you during the day. Like, if it's like, oh, God, I have to write this grant. But after that, I get to go 
talk to students, <laughs> you might say that maybe I want a career where I'm talking to students more and teaching more. So looking for opportunities where you can build your uh, CV and those experiences is definitely helpful. Mm -hmm. Also had a quick question. So in terms of CV building, do you have like a good resource? Because I've been looking into that lately. My resume is kind of overflowing. I don't know how to condense it to two pages. So now I'm kind of shifting to a CV so that I can have like all my um, experiences, but not necessarily have them all in my resume. Yeah. Um, I can look for resources. So a CV generally is longer and includes all of your uh, publications and research experiences and talks you've given and all of those types of things. Um, whereas a resume, uh, it's probably not going to include most of those things. And it is going to focus more on your professional experience. Um, and so I'll see if I can find um, some examples to share. When you're putting together a resume, you want to focus on what you accomplished, not just what you did. So you don't just say that I was, you know, my, my job title was X. You say in this job, I accomplished Y and Z. Again, your CV is more of an academic um, list of everything you've ever done, all the conferences you've ever been to, all the posters you've presented, all of your publications. Um, a resume is a much shorter targeted, like the sort of thing you would use when you're applying for a job or an internship. Mm -hmm. So there is a website called askamanager.org, A-S-K-A-M-A-N-A-G-E-R.org. And um, she is an advice columnist who focuses on workplace advice questions. And um, she would have information that's more relevant for the resume rather than the CV, but she's got some great, great, great writing on what a resume should look like. And um, I would highly recommend going there. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. What kind of experiences would you guys like recommend or say would be useful to do in undergrad that helped you or that would help somebody if they go to like grad school? I definitely, um, I was part of the Minority Access to Research Careers or the Mark U STAR program. And uh, that really helped to expose me to the PhD path. I did um, some summer internships at UNC. And, and then I continued to work with the um, advisor at Central, which was Dr. Kathy Silverkey. So I continued to work with her in undergraduate and being able to put that on my application really looked good and and also some of the other presenters have talked about not only saying why you enjoy the research and why you're interested in genetics but why that school so um having that undergraduate experience at unc and being able to say why i want to go to unc it was also very helpful thank you yeah, I would say definitely look into doing summer experiences as an undergraduate. Um, I was interested in graduate school, so I did summer undergraduate research projects in two different labs when I was an undergraduate. If you think you might want to work in informal science education, you could go volunteer at the Moorhead Planetarium or the Museum of Life and Science and um, get some exposure there. And it's an opportunity to find out 
what you like, what you don't like. Like Lana was saying, what makes you excited in your day? Um, it might be that you go to work in a research lab and you, you know, you start out working with E. coli cells and doing gene expression and you realize that you really like the gene expression part of it, but you would rather work in a mouse model instead of with E. coli cells. That you know, your, your interest lies in, uh, in an entire organism that you can see how something affects different systems, not just whether a cell lives or dies. Um, there's all kinds of, I guess, forks in the pathway that you can go down as you're figuring out what it is that you would like to do next in life. Um, my question is kind of personal, I guess, but um, back to what we, when we, when you asked about our career paths, I'm kind of split between going straight to a PhD after graduation, well, post back then PhD, or just starting in industry, because I want to work in a pharma industry and then like working my way up and maybe doing like tuition reimbursement while I'm at, while I work with the company. Do you have any suggestions for what you think might be a good plan? I, I, so I guess I have um, kind of mixed feelings. I think that if you know that you want the doctorate or uh, master's, there's opportunities. If you can start the program, then you can have opportunities to do, um, like I said, I did the gym fellowship program. So even mm -hmm. while I was working on the PhD, I was able to have an experience working in industry um, through a fellowship, but also working towards my degree. So um in that sense, if you go for the degree, you can still have opportunities to participate in uh, industry research. Mm -hmm. um, but if you're not sure that the degree can be a long time commitment and you could go into industry first and see what you think about it. Now, a lot of PhD programs, depending on what you go into, it's, it, I don't even know if many of them allow you to go part-time. You probably, most of them expect you to work full-time in the lab that's why they pay you so the thing about a PhD is you are paid a stipend um, and usually you have tuition remission because they expect you to work 40 hours more than 40 I'll do air quotes around 40 <laughs> um, in the lab um, so it's almost impossible to have a, a second job especially your first few years you're also taking coursework um, like I said, you have to pass that qualifying exam, then start preparing for your proposal defense, and then, you know, hopefully finishing and doing your dissertation defense. So it's, it really is um, consuming the PhD program. So I think if you know you want to go for a PhD, if that's what you're hitting, and if you start that route, then I would look for ways to do internships and then your PI has to be willing to let you go. So I went away for the whole summer to Philadelphia to um, do an internship with Johnson and Johnson. Thank you. Um, can you talk about, can you talk more about your gym fellowship program, please? Sure. So there was a recruiter that came um, to UNC, um, someone that had been a gym fellow before and um, they let us know. I, I definitely always wanted to get my own funding. So the gym fellowship not, not only pays you, uh, it pays you well to do a summer internship, but also gives you um, 
part of your stipend for the following academic year. So you do your internship over the summer, then you come back and they pay half of your stipend. When I was in graduate school, I think the stipend was uh, 25K a year. Um, it may have increased since then. So um, the way it worked, there was a first part of the application that they said you must get that in fast if you want to really be considered because the people who get that first part in, I think it was like by October, were the top ones that were considered and then you had time to get the second portion of the application in. And so then they did a matching thing where you would put down your interest and they would try to find companies that matched and aligned with your interest. Then I remember um, if then those companies would read your, your application and then you'd have to do phone interviews um, with people who were interested in you. And so from there, either someone would pick you or several people might pick you. And I think I had two people who were um, interested in me and I decided to go with the option in Philadelphia. And so it was actually Centicor, which was a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson because um, I was gonna work with Phage Display and I thought that maybe I would be able to incorporate that um, technique into my research at UNC. Um, so that was what was the deciding factor for me. But I actually had two people that were interested in me and I was able to pick which one I wanted to go with. Um, because of COVID, how do you think like your day to day has changed in terms of like working with people, like doing being productive on your own? And do you have like any idea of like when you'll be able to like actually go back and like work with people or do you think it's going to stay like this for a while? Um. So for me, I've kind of transitioned out of the wet lab. And so right now at UNC, generally the only people who are going back into the building are those who have to work in the work wet lab um, just to keep the occupancy down and, you know, help control the spread. Um, but we're, we're still able to be productive from home. Um, I'm part of another research project that we established a community um, advisory board and so we did that all online we recruited online um, established a board had our initial meeting online and so it's still possible thankfully because of technology that we can still stay in touch and continue on with our research goals um, and as far as when we'll return most people are saying not until next year sometime yeah thank you mm -hmm. Yeah. Would anybody else like to say where they're thinking about going next? What your plans for after undergraduate might be? Um, I'll go. Um, so currently, right now, um, my my undergraduate major. I'm a biomedical engineering student, and so I want to go to grad school for sure. But I'm still trying to decide between the PhD route or master's route because. Um, my college of engineering focuses more on industry, which makes sense. And so, um, I think, I don't know, I'm between, like, I haven't had that much, um, experience with, like, wet labs and, like, doing research like that, but I, I'm really in between 
doing that or like computational genomics. I know I want to be in the area of like precision medicine, genomic research. And so I'm really just trying to decide like which route to go. Cause um, this summer I've like, my summer, my summer internship is at an industry. And before my internship, I wasn't really interested in industry, but I really like my company. And so I'm really just deciding between if I want to go to master's and then go to industry or um, go into PhD and like stay with research or even do um, industry research. So I'm really just trying to decide on what I want to do. It changes like every other day. And I do remember someone in uh, my PhD program who had worked at a company, came back, did his PhD, and then went back to that company. So it could be that, you know, because you establish those connections, it might be easier for you to transition after you complete your doctorate or master's back into that company that you that you are finding that you really like. Yeah, I um like once you said that people went back into the industry, it really like changed my view because I always been like leaning towards PhD. PhD, I never like I I just never knew anyone who went from PhD back into industry, but. If I do do that, I'll definitely like be on like you know the research and development side of the um, company or like a pharma company. So, yeah, I'm thinking about working for a pharma company, but I don't know if I want to like start from the ground up and just um, come in as like a bioprocess engineer, mm-hmm. or if I want to like try to advance a little bit my education. So, like, I'm still kind of on the fence a little bit. I mean, I I have always wanted a PhD, but now, after being an undergrad, I'm kind of like, I don't know if I want to continue school for that long. And it's okay to take a break. You know, like I said, I didn't start the PhD program till I was uh, 29. So, it's, and I think that's more common than you might imagine. A lot of people take a break, they go work somewhere else, and then they decide to come back. And that can mm-hmm. also um, be impactful on your application because it shows your dedication to it, you know, that you have taken time, then you figured out what you want to do instead of like, uh, I don't know what I want to do after graduation, so I'll just do a PhD. That's not highly favored as much as someone who's really thought about what they want and and they really know why they want this PEC and how it's going to impact their life. This is kind of random, but I always thought of like dental school. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just I was really interested in it, and I didn't really think about like genomic medicine until this program. So now I'm kind of reevaluating, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Do you know if there's like any way to combine like? dental school with kind of everything we've talked about in this program? Absolutely. Um, I know of a researcher, I think her name is Jennifer Webster Syriac, and I might not be saying, she's at UNC, and she um, combines, she's a dentist, but she also does, I think, microbiology work, and so genetics is involved in everything, (laughs) everything, whether it's the microbiome, whether it's um, you know, infections and gums, there might be predispositions that cause some people to be more genetically predisposed to it. So I I think if you're thinking about dental school, there's definitely a way to look at some underlying genetic conditions. 
I know there are uh, con- genetic conditions that can cause things like um, microdontia, which is like when you are missing teeth or have small teeth. Uh, you know, so there are several things that could be explored, even if you go into dentistry. And I think there are dual um, DDS, PD- PhD programs as well. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I always just kind of thought of it as like a one-way path, but obviously there's a lot that I need to learn. <laughs> yeah, so part of what a dentistry school does is it trains people to be dentists that see patients, and you can also get a PhD in dentistry, which would be more focused on research. Wow, it's very interesting. I need to look into that. Thank you. I just want to say thank you so much for the program. And um, sorry, I have to go because I have another meeting that I can't miss. But thank you so much for this program. I really enjoyed, like, all the talks. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining. Yeah, like Anjali was saying, um, I really really did enjoy this program. This definitely, like, changed, not changed per se, but definitely opened my eyes to, like, what is – you know, in genomic research, like, I really did appreciate this knowledge. And it's really like, you know, I don't want to say like change, but like, you know, it just made me more knowledgeable about what genomic research and all the different sides. I really appreciate it. We have been recording all of these conversations. We're going to release them as a podcast series. So if there were conversations that you've missed or somebody that you didn't catch the first time around that you've you've now realized would be really interesting to hear um you will be able to listen to the conversations as as a podcast and we will send email when those podcasts are ready exactly well it's now one o'clock so i just want to say thank you everyone for joining this careers exploration in uh, genomic medicine research and thank you for joining the call today i hope you guys enjoy the rest of your day and the rest of your summer Good luck in the new school year. Thank you guys so much. I learned so much. Yeah, and you know how to find us if there's anything else that we could do to be helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.